Hi, everyone. Welcome to the June Hashtag Exchange SA Chat. My name is Yusra Iftikhar, and I'm your APTA Student Assembly Director of Communications, and my gender pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm joined tonight by my guests, Michael Cromarty, Brianna Scott, and Mark Aguilar. I want to give uh, just a quick statement, quick disclaimer, and then we're just going to get right into the interview. Quote, the unrest in our country is a response to more than George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or the disproportionate effect of COVID-19 on racial and ethnic minorities. It is a response to generations of death, despair, fear, and suffering, end quote, APTA President Sharon Dunn. In alignment with President Dunn's message on racism and systemic inequality in America, and in recognition of the fact that we as a profession are not immune to the everyday realities of its people, the APTA Student Assembly stands united against racism, systemic oppression, and discrimination, and stands for addressing health disparities and improving diversity, equity, and inclusion. We began planning this exchange chat a few months ago, but have since decided to refocus the conversation with voices from those that can best speak to what is most important right now, the Black SBT and SBTA communities. I'd also like to give a quick disclaimer on behalf of tonight's panel. We know that these conversations can be difficult to hear, especially for those of us for whom they are new. We hope you'll view tonight's conversation not as calling out any one person or institution, but rather an opportunity to learn and gain valuable insight from three recent graduates. And on behalf of myself, to everyone watching, I want to acknowledge that I tweeted earlier this week from my personal page that I promise to maintain your anonymity tonight, and I intend to stand by that. So please ask your questions free of the fear of judgment, and I'll ask my board members who are scanning for questions not to send me the student's name alongside the questions. I hope you'll also watch tonight with the recognition that my guests do not have this option of anonymity. So we hope you'll allow us all grace, an open mind, and your understanding that while Mark, Mike, and Brianna have powerful voices, they still represent only themselves and their experiences. All right, let's just jump right into it. Um, it's funny because we started planning this a few months ago, and my intent was to highlight all these like student voices. I didn't think about the fact that we all would have graduated by now, um, but I think that everyone is going to be super excited to get to know you three and uh, to, to hear from you. So um, Brianna, we'll start with you, then we'll go to Mike and Mark, if y'all don't mind just introducing yourselves. Um, you can tell us whatever you want us to know, what program you graduated from, where you're at now, uh, and yeah, we'll start there. Okay, cool. So my name is Brianna Scott. I went to Georgia State University uh, for my undergraduate education, and I went to the University of Miami and Miami, Florida for physical therapy school. I'm originally from California, Southern California, San Bernardino. I now live in Atlanta with my husband, and I work at Benchmark um, Outpatient Physical Therapy Clinic in Camp Creek on the south side. And I also work in Piedmont State Hospital on the weekends, PRN. And that's me. Awesome. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Cromarty. I attended uh, Stillman College for my undergraduate education. Um, and along with Brianna, I went to the University of Miami, uh, where we graduated last May of 2019. I'm also um, the author of the blog, Code Switching, that you may have read. Um, as well as currently, I'm residing in Miami, Florida, where I work for the Miami VA uh, Medical Center. All right, Mark? Uh, my name is Mark Aguilar. Uh, I originally am from Houston, Texas. Uh, I graduated from University of Houston for my undergrad, and I am a recent graduate of University of Texas at El Paso. Um, 
my area of interest is orthopedics. Um, so right now I'm just studying for boards and just trying to look for jobs and miss COVID. All right. Well, everyone hire Mark if you're listening and you're looking <laughs> to hire. Reach out. His information will be in the comments at the end. All right. So let's just jump right into it. So uh, in the title of this chat, we mentioned uh, fostering allyship in DEI, DEI standing for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Could someone briefly just mention um, what, why those three terms are different, why we say all three, and maybe like a quick definition of each? Okay, um, I'll start. Um, I'll start with the diversity uh, part of the question. So diversity is for many different cultures, religions, ethnicities, sexualities to be re represented in, in a particular program or institution. So you just want to have different voices, you know, different faces, different perspectives represented where you are. Equity for me speaks to the quality of what's being received by each of those different groups of people. So the quality of, or of the experience that they're going to have, the quality of the experience of getting into the program, graduating from the program. So that equity is kind of like, are, are these people having the same type of experience? And is the quality the same? And then that inclusion is not for the voice just to be there, but for the voice to be heard and to be incorporated into decisions that are going to be made by that institution. So for me, that's what those three mean to me and the definitions that I kind of ascribe to each of them. Yeah, I think that's great. And so, uh, sorry, go ahead. Someone else going to speak? Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I agree. And just to kind of go on with your other part of that question, kind of about why we mentioned all three together, I, I think you can't have one without the other, you know, um, if you have diversity in a corporation or in a group or organization, um, it doesn't really, you know, hold the true value that it can if there's no inclusion, you know, if, it, if that diversity is not being celebrated. So I think, you know, in order to achieve diversity, you need to, of course, have equity. And then once the diversity is there, it's important that we are inclusive. So, you know, that kind of analogy that people will mention of, you know, not only should you invite them to the dance, but once they get there, you should actually ask them to dance with you. That way they at least feel welcome, their opinion matters and things of that nature. Absolutely. So I think that, um, you know, the idea of DEI and those efforts is something that is probably pretty easy for a lot of us to get behind. But um, what would you say to those who say, well, we need to focus on becoming good PTs and PTAs? Why is this important for our profession? I think I'll speak to that a little bit. Um, one, I think it's been reiterated like multiple times, both by APTA and just like the health community in general, that um, we need to reflect the patients like we treat and we're trying to, um, um, we can build like a better uh, interaction with patients that we come in contact with um, by reflecting that patient population. So getting more students that are like that population would help immensely. As, as well as um, also just to add to it, um, you know, we're not in the clinic by ourselves. Our colleagues, you know, when we go to conferences, we won't all have, you know, be fortunate enough to be in a room where it looks just like someone like us. So it's important that, you know, we're educated on these kind of topics or know how to handle ourselves in these situations or environments 
where everyone doesn't look the same. I, I did all what they're saying, yeah. <laughs> all right, perfect. So, uh, so let's talk about, um, you know, your voices and the way that you've, you've been using them to aid in these DEI efforts. All three of you have written blog posts for the APTA Pulse blog about being a black student in a DPT program. Um, if each of you could briefly just talk me through what was that process like writing those posts and what's the reaction been like after putting um, something that's not just a passion of yours, but something that's a lived experience of yours just out there into the PT world. Oh, man. Brianna, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Mike and then Mark. Yes, it was. I actually wrote some original personal blog posts. They were called Dear Minority SPT. I wrote three of them. And that was just me expressing my experience to my, you know, social media platform. And I, it didn't really occur to me that I should share it to the APT until someone brought it up to me. And then when I did that, I realized now that I'm going to be speaking to a bigger audience, is there any more that I need to say? And I do remember one process that happened was I, I sent my raw, you know, post, my original um, writings to the to the APTA Pulse, and they came back and was like, okay, this is a lot. Break it up into three different posts and do this and do that. And, I was like, oh. <laughs> and so it was a little bit hard for me because I was like, you know, I put my 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 heart into that and my voice was there. So to take things out and move things around was a little bit of a struggle. But I still think they did a great job of capturing exactly the the voice that I wanted to carry, which is that it is not easy to be a black student in physical therapy school. And it's something that really just gets hushed over. It's not something that Mike and I and our other two classmates were able to talk about with our classmates. It was something we could only talk about with each other. And I thought mm -hmm. that, you know, getting it out to the APTA would allow other black students to know that they're not alone, that you're one out of 30 or four out of 30 in your class or four out of 60, you're probably experiencing the same things we are and it's okay. We should probably get together and like have a support group or something. So it was a fun process for me and it started before I even knew the pulse was a thing. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, Mike, tell the crowd about your blog post, which has pretty much at this point gone PT viral. Um, so actually, I, I actually owe that to Brianna because one, um, she was the one that told me to submit it to the APTA, but even before that, before I even put pen to paper, reading her story definitely inspired mine. Um, you know, I initially started the blog after um, we had uh, a guest lecture at UM. Um, come, Greg Todd came and talked to us and kind of told us, get your name out there. And I had wrote several blogs before then, but then I was like, all right, let me write something that's a little bit more personal. And that's when I decided to kind of just really speak on my experience. Um, didn't have any intent of it going anywhere. I like, you know, posted it to my blog website um, and could let it, you know, see as many people as I wanted to see by how much I decided to spread it on like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And um, I think I posted in like in October, right before we left for clinicals. And then mm -hmm. in January, it may have been you, Someone it, it made it to the post and someone retweeted it on on uh, Twitter and that was like a long day of me at the clinic just like swiping to see how many people had seen it and I was like sweating bullets because you know when I started writing it you know people in my camp I'll say kind of were like be careful writing this you know because I grew up in the South they kind of our um, 
you know, experiences or, you know, interactions with dealing with race and things like that aren't always met with the best, um, you know, consequences. So they were like, you know, you may not be employed. Like, you know, people may think that you're trying to rile people up or start a movement Mm -hmm. of that nature. But I'm like, I'm, you know, not trying to prove a point, just sharing my experience. And so to see the reaction, you know, where people were kind of embracing it and, and, you know, commending me for sharing my story in my head, I'm thinking like, I wasn't thinking I was being a brave soul or anything like that. I just was kind of putting out there how I felt or what I was going through. But then also to see on the other side, how many other people could relate. That was something that, you know, I was like, okay, this was worth it and definitely enjoyed that I, you know, did decide to do that. So. Yeah. Do you mind briefly um, telling everyone what your blog post was about? Yeah. So um, it was titled code switching. Um, And if you're not familiar, kind of code switching is basically, um, where, you know, people will change their language or their language style based on the environment that they're in. Um, and it's kind of almost serves as like an essential skill to help you be accepted in the society. So like, you know, if you are used to being around, you know, um, a certain demographic that may talk a certain way or their mannerisms may be a certain way, then when you get to a an environment that you're not as familiar with, then what you'll try to do is basically uh, emulate the perceived action that you think that they do. So like for me, I have somewhat of a sudden draw. So like, or I talk really slow, but I tried to, um, or at least when I went to PT school, tried to pronounce every letter, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, skipping or shortcutting any words just so that, you know, I at least sounded what I thought the rest of everybody else sounded like. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, um, Mike and Brianna that you both just said that I definitely want to come back to um, Mark, though, I want to give you a chance to, to promote your blog post and tell me a little bit about that experience. That one was called The Look. So kind of following on with what Mike was saying, I was inspired by both of you guys. I read both of you guys' posts like when it came out, and uh, Brianna's yours hit home. Mike, yours really hit home. And I just just wanted to – I thought that, that was like a a good thing to like try to do to try to – um, show how your experiences in PT school as a black or a minor, minority student. Um, I've always had a passion for writing, so I just kind of decided to use that and put my experience on paper. And before I submitted that APCA blog post, I was writing my own blog. Uh, my, I had written mine well before any of the recent events had, had even transpired, so it really had nothing to do with any of the recent murders it just kind of happened so that uh it came out when this was going on and it had kind of related to it um and since it hasn't been out that long i don't have like a complete gauge on it but so far i've gotten an incredibly positive response from it uh and i just wanted i guess i wrote it to um to share my perspective and uh so like minority students can kind of see that the the journey, what the journey can entail and that it's not impossible and that can make you stronger. Awesome. Awesome. So I think that one, it's really cool to hear that, um, you know, obviously all of your voices matter quite a bit, um, not just to all of us that read the, the Pulse blog, but to each other. Um, and that you were able to inspire each other to then put your stories out there. I think that's huge. Um, Brianna, you mentioned that it's not always easy to be a black student in PT school. Um, 
any or all of you can answer this. For those of us, you know, who don't have that same lived experience, why is that? Why is it not easy to be a black student in PT school? So I'll start by answering that. That was exactly what my blog post was about. It was called pressure. And basically when you are at this level of higher education, you pretty much understand that a lot of people don't know where you come from and they don't know how much harder you had to work to get there, whether it be because of lack of finances or just not being in a, a, a good school district or not having the money to get to school. So one of the first barriers is money. Like I had to raise money just to even move to Miami. I was selling Herbalife. I was selling my fitness skills. I was an exercise science major. I was doing personal training for extremely low rates, just trying to get enough money to, to like move, get a moving truck because I needed it. So that can be the first barrier. And then once you get there, you need even more money for your books and all these things. So that can just be the first problem, having the resources you need to even study and be successful. Um, another thing that you have to kind of worry about is like imposter syndrome. And I necessarily didn't have that, but it is this kind of idea that everybody else is not going to think you're as smart as them because of the stereotype of black people. So you already know what people think of black people in general. And you kind of have that fear that they already think that about you, or you might even really mess up and start to think that about yourself and think that you don't belong there, especially if you don't do well on a quiz compared to somebody. So there's a lot of comparison going on to everyone else in the group. And you have to really be careful of that because you can steal your joy pretty quickly. Um, for me as a black yeah. woman, like my hair was probably a whole problem in itself because I didn't felt comfortable at first wearing, you know, my natural hair. It's very big. It's kinky. And when I did start wearing it, everybody wants to touch it. And I didn't have the, I would say, the guts to say, you know, please don't do that because it literally can take, I've spent 24 hours on a hairstyle before to make sure that it's neat enough that I don't get told, hey, you need to go and fix that. So when someone just comes up to you and does this, it's like, oh my gosh, please don't do that. And I didn't have the courage to do that. There were times I literally bit my head over so they could touch my hair. So I didn't come off like an angry black person or, you know, being weird about it. So even having that to deal with, making sure your hair just looks fine, takes away from study time. <laughs> it takes away from a lot. And to even feel confident once you do get it right to go on the class and, and just feel like a normal person can take a lot of courage as well. Um, and then the overdoing it, overdoing it in group projects, overstudying, trying to get perfect grades, also that you can feel, like I said, compatible with everybody else and that nobody's going to take your, um, what, like you getting into school, take it away from you because, oh, she's getting C's and B's and it must be because she's black, essentially. That's like the thought that, that goes into your head. So you do everything you can to be the best in the class so nobody can say about you or any other black person that they're not smart and they don't deserve to be in class with you. Yep. Anybody else want to speak on that? Um, I'll kind of add, add to it a little bit. You know, I know Brianna said she couldn't relate to the imposter syndrome, but I've got like a, I guess, somewhat funny story. But like when I got into UM, um, we had orientation and like I told um, some of the people in the class after the fact that I was waiting to get to orientation after I flew down from Atlanta um, the night before for them to say like, oh, we made a mistake. Like your name isn't on the list. And like, for like a whole, the whole first month of PT school, I was waiting for them to like say like, oh, 
I'm sorry, Mr. Cromartie, we made a mistake. I don't know how this happened, but like, I was just waiting for someone to tell me that, you know, it was an accident that I got into PT school. And like, you know, for me, I've always been proud to be black, but like, as I, you know, um, went higher in education, I kind of shied away from the topic of being black because I didn't, like she kind of said, I didn't, I didn't want people to discredit me on why I was there. I didn't want people thinking like, oh, he's here, you know, and I've heard these, you know, like microaggressions, like, oh, he's here because of affirmative action or, you know, uh, there's a quota that needs to be met. And, you know, so I tried to just completely shy away from even discussing me being black because, you know, I know how hard I work. We all know how hard we work to get there regardless. And, you know, for someone to just come in without knowing the work you put in to say something like that, you know, will become frustrating, you know, along with already uh, embedding that imposter syndrome that you have. And so I just used to like try to shy away from even touching on the subject. Yeah. I think I want to add a little bit on that with the imposter syndrome. Like personally for me, I've had it since I got in the program. <laughs> it hasn't left at all. Um, and I don't think it will go away until I pass my boards. And so I finally see that little circle that says pass in the middle. So um, <laughs> I've, I've lived with this since I got in PT school. It's continued. I, it, I think it's significantly reduced over time, but it's still there. And part of the doubt mm -hmm. comes from me not like getting in PT school on the first try. And then another part mm -hmm. of it is like when you when you finally get in, you're in a, you're around like the best of the best. These are all people who got in PT mm -hmm. school on their own merit, and um, you're in a cohort of people who are all talented and smart in their own right. And you try like measure measure yourself up to them. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course, part of it too, even though you don't want it to be, but if you're like one of the few minorities in the group, then it's like it kind of makes it more difficult because in the back of your mind you're like, uh, well. If, if I'm not at, like, the top of the top of this group, then you you might feel like, oh, I'm just here to fill a spot, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mike, you brought up um, the word microaggression, and I was wondering if you would mind, like, briefly just explaining what that is. Um, so I guess uh, in my eyes, a microaggression is kind of like an indirect or, you know, like unintentional expression of, like, um, racism or sexism, ageism, you know, and it's those comments that they may come from people with well intent, but, you know, they still cut deep as the people with the intent of being, you know, sexist, ageist, race, uh, racist, anything of that nature. Um, so it's kind of those, you know, um, oh, you speak really well, you know, it's like, what are you implying? You know, I should be able to talk just like everyone else or, you know, like I said, the affirmative action you know, statement that people like to make. Um, and yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, did all of you think you'd be talking about race and racism this much when you got into PT school? Do you think it would have been not only a topic that came up a lot, but that you would be kind of the voice on it? Definitely not. <laughs> <A> resounding no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Everyone <listening>. <laughs> Like, I, I tried to shy away from it. So, yes, when it, right. you know, when it came up, I mean, now that I see that I've kind of got a voice, I definitely want to take advantage of it. But, like, going into PT school, I was like, let me just kind of fly under the radar so no one's questioning how I got here or why I'm here. And then, you know, people like classmates quizzing me or something like that, you know, trying right. to see if I'm smart enough. So, 
you know, when it started, I was like, uh-oh, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's one of those things that, um, you know, when you when you talk to, when you're talking about, I guess, racism or anti-Blackness or something like that, that's not really something that you can just kind of turn off and walk away from because everybody can see it. <laughs> and so it's, I'm sure, very tough. Is it at all frustrating to be expected to now be the voice about race and uh, allyship and all this stuff? Is it something that you welcome? Is it a little bit of both? I definitely welcome it. Um, at first, like Michael said, um, I remember being in the group, uh, the Facebook group for UM of students getting in. And I remember when I saw that there was two other women, Michael wasn't there yet. I'm like, I'm not even going to sit next to them. I'm not going to do that whole thing where we band together. I'm like, we'll just try to be with other people and just, like you said, just kind of blend in. And then when you get into school and you realize that the pressure is still there, that there are microaggressions flying, there is some racist things going on in your school, you quickly realize how much you need to band together. And then ultimately, I think what me, led to me even writing my original blog post was like, Somebody needs to hear about this. And I honestly did hope my classmates would read it because I didn't know how to address them personally or one-on-one. And it was after I had um, an incident that, uh, that was very offensive to me is when I started writing those. And I think it was because, yeah, somebody needs to understand that the things that go on in society, they happen in this micro pool in your PT class as well. And it's not okay because we're supposed to be building up people who are going to do no harm to anyone, but yet we have this kind of culture of segregation and physical therapy schools. So how are we expected to go out and treat patients equally? We don't even think of each other or treat each other equally. We might not even be aware of it. So now I welcome, I love talking about it. I'm not shy about it. Come at me, you know, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, does anybody else want to add? You can go ahead, Mark. Um. Yeah, microaggressions, they happen all the time. But I think what's frustrating is um, part of the battle is just getting the other person to, like, admit that it actually is a microaggression before you can even, like, start explaining it. Ever. Because if if they do, like, for instance, Brianna, if someone comes up to you and touches your hair and you're like, oh, no, don't do that. And then maybe you start wanting to explain, like, why that's not okay. You know? And then they're just not even, like, taking that. Then, like, how are we even going to continue on from there like you can't even like meet me halfway so to speak so um yeah it can be pretty frustrating um and then you know if you don't have that many people around you who can speak to your experience then you know it's like a million people against you and then obviously if, if there's like an onlooker where it's a large group against just you then they're gonna side with the group if they don't know anything about the topic so that's what kind of makes it more frustrating, like having allies or having people try to help you out. Um, it just kind of works against you. So. Sure. So when I brought up issues of racism um, in a lot of different settings and with a lot of different people, I've been told, well, you know, we can't know how to fix the problem if we don't know what the problem is. And, for example, if students don't speak up, then how can we know, you know, what to do, um, we can't read your mind, but why is it that students might not speak up? Um, Any insight? So I guess, um, so I, I know, I guess 
Like, you know, you might have that fear of if you speak up that they may discredit, like they may think you're overreacting or you're that, that stereotypical, you know, um, mad black person. You're mad at the world. You got a chip on your shoulder. And, you know, you basically you're trying so hard for three years, you know, Monday through Friday from eight to five, not to feed into these stereotypes that people, you know, assume about you. So, you know, while it becomes frustrating, it just almost becomes an internal burden that you're carrying rather than trying to voice it. Because what if you do finally speak up and you're like, all right, this is the moment. It's going to all stop once I speak up and then nothing is done about it. Now you've lost all hope that something will happen or change. And so you're like, you know what, it, it's almost better that I just keep my mouth shut and at least I can hold on to the possibility of hope of when I do speak up, something will change versus speaking up, nothing changing, and then you're like, this is the way it's going to be. I definitely yeah. was afraid because I did speak up about something that happened in school, but it, was, it wasn't until almost a week after that I spoke up because I was going back and forth asking God, I was asking my parents, asking, you know, some fellow PT students, what should I do? And all of the fear was the same, like, well, you know, you might get retaliated against, you know, they might put you in the corner. If the if it gets out to your classmates, they're not going to be down with you anymore. So just like the fear of being completely rejected um, and just mm-hmm. like, like Michael said, just overlooked and told that it, it's, you're basically crazy. That's not racist. It's not microaggression. And then for nothing to be done about it. So fear almost made me not speak up. But for me, it's like, I'd rather lose it all than for this to continue to happen. And the the program director and the faculty have no idea that that's the type of students that, that get into the program. So. Um, I think I didn't really ever shy away from speaking up and whether that hurt me or not, it is what it is. <laughs> um, but just overall in general, like as a guy, when you're, whenever you want to like speak out against anything, it from some people it can be perceived as you being weak, like oh you're just supposed to like shut up and take it. Um, and then added on to that, as a black man speaking out, you 100% have to be careful of how you express yourself. Like you get too much bass in your voice, or speak too loudly, or show any type of emotion, then you're automatically aggressive or angry, even when you aren't. Um, like if you talk even if you're like talking in normal voice or like a little bit higher than normal, it's, Oh my God, why are you so loud? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're quiet and literally just sitting there doing, doing nothing, then people read your body language like crazy. And it's normally negative. Um, like me personally, I kind of have a deep voice. So whenever I speak, I get kind of odd reactions. It's either like kind of positive or kind of negative. Like on some, on one hand, like people kind of like it and, it tends to be like women, but we're not going to go there. But, uh, and then on the other hand, like some people kind of get annoyed when I speak up. So that's kind of an added challenge. But, you know, with the topic of microaggressions, I think I would just like for us to be able to get get into a space where you can sit down with somebody, express and say the things that have bothered you. And then the party acknowledges it without getting offensive or defensive or what have you. An apology can follow, and then everyone can just resume a schedule now that we, like, both have a mutual understanding. But what often happens is people are quick to get defensive or when you start explaining how things are, like, hurtful, and then they're quick to be like, oh, I'm not racist, but, like, that's not what you're really saying. Mm -hmm. And then they start listing out all these reasons, and then nothing gets solved, 
And then they just spend all this time trying to like run away from getting this like tag, like, oh, I'm not trying, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. But really you should try to be anti-racist. So what is what does that mean? Like what what's the difference between me not being racist and me being anti-racist? Um not being not being racist is just I feel like you're you have these like certain extremes in your head of of things that are automatically racist no matter no matter what. It'll get you looked at shunned upon like these are the negative people in society and I'm trying to stay away from that but in reality there's like I know there's this one graphic that a lot of people have been sharing uh of this pyramid and the the top part of it is like the overtly racist things like saying the n-word or saying you know like the really offensive things but then the whole bottom part mm-hmm. of the pyramid is like the little things that still add up to that, like it's the base of the, the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And doing that stuff too is often what it leads to the microaggressions. It, it, it adds on to the reason why we can feel uncomfortable in a space. It's not really the top stuff. A lot of people know how, to, how not to do the top stuff, but it's the bottom stuff that it goes unaddressed. A lot of people don't know it and it adds on to like, kind of the way society is. So um, being anti-racist is looking at that whole pyramid and trying to not, looking into yourself, first of all, and not wanting to build onto that or add into that. And then also looking around with your, your network, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, and like call stuff out when it's happening, as opposed to like staying silent. Because staying silent, how I mean that's basically like you may think you're being not racist, but you're just letting things fester and letting things continue. So Yeah, absolutely. So would any of you mind touching on some people in your life who've done a good job of that, who've been, you know, we use the word allies and who've been strong allies to you? I'd love to hear um maybe either or both like as a student in the classroom and then maybe as a student in the clinic. Hey, Michael, I see you at the top. Okay. <laughs> um, so first, uh, in the classroom, um, I don't know. I don't know if it'd be name dropping. Okay. Well, one of my classmates, who I mean, Bree knows exactly what I'm talking about. You won't see me without him. Um, when I initially got into um, PT school, it was a quick turnaround. And just to make a long story short, I needed a place to stay the night before orientation. Uh, so I reached out in the Facebook group and no one responded, but thankfully the saving grace of Brianna, she responded and, you know, allowed me to stay with her so that I could attend orientation the next morning. Um, and, you know, looking back, I was very uh, frustrated, but um, my good friend, Mark, he actually, uh, he, he doesn't use Facebook. So that's why he didn't see it. But when I told him my story at orientation, he told, you know, I told him I wouldn't have a place um, to stay once I came back down with the rest of my stuff. And he like, he said, hey, here's my number. Like, when you get here, I'll send you my address or pick you up if need be. And you can crash in my place until you find a place to stay. And like, from that point on, I was like, oh, you know, he doesn't know me left from right. And, you know, he openly, you know, welcomed me and allowed me a place to stay. And, you know, from, for him not to know me and to be a complete stranger, I was like, okay. And, you know, whenever somebody may have had a microaggression, once again, even in a joking manner, 
before I could even fix my lips to defend myself, there he was, you know, drawing attention to it. So like that whole not racist versus anti-racist, he was anti-racist. He would like speak up. Um, also now at the current job that I'm at, um, who was my former CI and now is my coworker, um, he was like the first thing I experienced as an ally of someone older. Like I know kind of the um, millennial group gets it, I guess, or whatever. Um, you know, we kind of are more progressive, I guess is the term, but like, you know, my um, um, biased or unconscious bias towards older white men growing up in the South is they're not favorable towards younger black men, but he was like the complete opposite. And um, I think what made him such a young or uh, great ally is that he was not uncomfortable saying the words black or white. Like he was still himself, allowed me to be myself. We openly talked about race, um, with everything that's going on now. He's even told me he's got two little boys and he sat his oldest boy down who's nine, nine or 10 years old and kind of showed him the video um, and everything and just told him about everything that's going on. And, you know, I feel like that's making him a great ally because he's trying to help dismantle this, you know, repetitive cycle by starting with his son and kind of educating him at a young age so that he doesn't go through middle school, high school, college, you know, thinking that these things are okay or that's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and I have um, an ally. We're not name dropping, but she was in my class. Um, she's um, Puerto Rican and Mexican, and she was someone who I would also classify as anti racist and not only that she was a little firecracker too and she was friends with everyone she was friends with um myself and uh, some of the other african-american women she was friends with someone who had complete opposite views of her you know politically i mean just everything she actually became friends with him and they would argue all the time (laughs) about everything (laughs) she was just not afraid to speak her mind and she was genuinely curious about um, the injustices that would go on. I knew she's someone that I can trust and I can talk to openly about um, how I feel without, you know, fear of any type of microaggression. And I know that, you know, her heart is truly genuine. So I just love her. She's watching. She probably knows who she is too. Um, and then as far as the clinic, um, I didn't really have too many allies in the clinic, but higher up in academia, our program director at the University of Miami is a very um, good ally as well. And in her position, that's not hard to do because she represents a lot of people and she has a lot on the line as a program director. But if you even just look into what her interests are, her, all of her research is in health disparities. A lot of her research is in minority retention and recruitment. And even in her fostering our conversation, we had a UNPT family conversation. She was extremely concerned about how to get this conversation going. And she was so humble. She said, I understand I'm a white woman and I don't even know if I have a place at the table but I know I have a responsibility to do something. So I would definitely consider her an ally and I definitely appreciate her a lot. Yeah. So, so now I'm wondering, everyone who's listening in is like hearing these stories and they're like, that's who I want to be for my friends. Like I want to be that person who's not just an ally. They're not just not racist, but I want to be actively anti-racist. Now, with everything that's happening right now around the country, there have been a lot of resources that have been shared, especially if you're on social media. Um, You're probably seeing it all the time. And so that can be a little bit overwhelming for people, too. Um, So I'm I'm wondering, you know, what if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I read all three of your blog posts and I've donated and I've I've read the books and I've watched the documentaries. Like, now what? 
Um, so that's one part of it is like now what happens, but also the people who don't feel comfortable speaking up right now, because um, allyship can come in a lot of different forms. So what do you say to the people who say, well, where do I start? How do I, how do I speak up for this? Um, and how do I start that conversation with my classmates or my colleagues or my students or whomever um, who are black? It's a lot of questions in one, so <laughs> wherever anyone wants to start. Uh, I think I'll try to tackle that. Um, so <laughs> like, yeah, like if you're on social media a lot and you're, or just have been wondering from your different inter interactions, like, oh, how can I help? I think, like I mentioned before, it's starting off, just look inside your, yourself and try to root out any bias, biases or like negativity that you hold, held towards any groups of people. Um, who either look different than you, have darker skin than you, um, look at the way you've treated people in your life and think about how you may have done things, could have done things differently. Um, or maybe like even reach out to some of these people who you feel like you've done wrong and make amends. Um, more so because I think a lot of the heavy lifting that needs to be done and the way we're really going to change things, like it's really like we can only do so much. And by me, we, I mean like minorities, if you're in the majority, like you have to, you guys have to do the work because the majority is the ones who are in the, you know, higher roles, higher positions and are making the decisions at the end of the day. Of the day. Um, they're the ones who are, make up most of our classes, make up the, the, the faculty, make up the majority of the CIs, the clinicians. So, you know, you know, we can talk all day in this group and say, oh, you know, you should do this, you should do, you should do that. But then if the group that needs to actually do it and hear it doesn't receive and do anything with it, then we're still, we're just in like this echo chamber and nothing's really happening. So um, this is first have the conversation with yourself, with your family, with your friends, when we're in the room, when we're not in the room, especially, um, and just try to create a place where we can feel welcomed. So, and I think overall yeah. being, being an ally, um, you, you need to be able to like acknowledge issues when they occur or when they get brought to your attention, try to like seek understanding, um, or just like try to assist anyone that you feel like is kind of having not the best of time. Like when they need you, um, call out microaggressions or like racist situations. Don't just like, once when you see something happen, don't just, you know, pull someone to the side and whisper like, oh, that was wrong. I don't think that should happen. Like, stand up and say something in a moment. Because you telling me something that's not going to, I'm not the one doing anything. It's the person. So fall down the moment. Let the person know. Let it be a teachable moment. It doesn't need to be something negative, but, you know, let it be known. Uh, support causes. Bring awareness to our issues. When it's time to help out, don't just disappear. Um, be like all the way in. Don't be halfway in. Don't just try to do a little bit, but just be all the way in. And I think most importantly, whenever we are talking or when, whenever we are trying to bring stuff up, listen. Yes, I agree with Mark. And I'm probably going to be the one to just stomp on a toe real quick. But uh, ultimately, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable enough to speak up. 
at the end of the day, all of Mark's suggestions are going to eventually result in you speaking up some way. Either that's inside of your house with your family, that's at work with your coworkers, that's in the situation if you're witnessing something, that's on social media, that's with your voting. At some point, as an ally, you cannot continue to hide your voice because your voice is what matters because Black people, minority, are such a small percentage of the country and we can easily be ignored. I mean, it took a lot for the civil rights movement to get going. For, and it took a lot. A lot of people died. A million people had to get on the lawn. Whereas things get done all the time. Bills are passed all the time with the majority without any type of crazy demonstrations. So you can't avoid speaking up. Eventually you have to dig inside of yourself and be unafraid and be uncomfortable because the fact of the matter is the minorities are uncomfortable a lot of the time. And we don't have a choice in that. And you get to have a choice in being comfortable. And if you want to see change, you've got to be uncomfortable. So I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from saying an ally has to speak up. That's my position on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mike, I want to give you a chance to talk on that, too. Do you all mind if I tell you just a quick story, too, about, um, you know, Mark and Brianna, you've both brought up um, looking inside yourself and kind of dealing with your own biases. And whenever I hear someone say that, it always brings to mind um, a professor I had at Duke. He uh, it was he's an older white gentleman um, and his he's a neuroanatomy professor. And so he relates back a lot of things like neurodiversity. And he talked about how he's taken implicit bias tests because implicit bias is one of those things where it's subconscious. We don't know, you know, always like what our biases are unless we actively are like y'all said, looking inside ourselves, addressing those things. And my favorite class of his was when he put up his results of his implicit bias test in front of the class. And um, he was absolutely calling himself out. And by the end of it, he said, I'm sure I've offended every single person in this room by now because he had biases against um, black men. He had biases against Muslims. And so we're all just sitting there like, well, I don't know if I trust you anymore. But the entire point was to say, we all have these. And now we know this is a starting point. So now we have to work on how do we mitigate these? How do we minimize these as much as possible? Um, and that starts with, like y'all said, using your voice, whether that's out in, out in front of 100 people, um, whether that's in an exchange chat in front of hundreds of people, or whether that's you know in your homes with classmates and family. So I just appreciate both of you bringing that point up. But, um, but Mike, did, was there anything that you wanted to add? Um, not really. I just So I did um, in the comments of the uh, exchange chat, I dropped in a link um, for that implicit bias test um, that's done by Harvard. And um, I think that's kind of mm -hmm. like the first step, you know, identifying what your biases are, especially PT students love numbers, facts, things of that nature. You get yeah. to see your results by clicking on that. Once you identify, you know, your biases, now you can take those small steps, whether it's speaking out at the watering hole, you know, on break in between lectures or, you know, in the office or break room at work. Um, and then, you know, once you kind of get comfortable and grounded in that, now you can kind of take a bigger platform by going to social media. Mm -hmm. And you see someone, you know, I feel like everyone's got a story from someone in their high school who's still in the same town of their high school mm -hmm. sharing some crazy story mm -hmm. that's probably not the best. And, you know, now you can, you know, say, hey, this isn't cool and this is why it's not cool, you know. Mm -hmm because now it's a larger platform being on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you know, and so now you're now ready because you made yourself comfortable by doing it to people you know face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when microaggressions come up, when we slip up and make mistakes, a question I've gotten a lot is, what do you do in that moment? Um, 
you know, certainly your answer might be different from somebody else's, but say um, we use a microaggression against a patient. Um, do we say sorry immediately if we recognize it? Do we bring it up? Do we acknowledge it at all? Or do we just hope they didn't notice? What do y'all think? I would err on the side of caution and I would identify it. Um, you know, if you have a microaggression, especially because how we're seeing the statistics um, in the healthcare disparities with COVID-19, just to be safe, I mean, I would, you know, apologize. I mean, we're humans and we make mistakes, especially if you have, you know, good intent, then it's no problem in backtracking. I would rather that than, you know, hearing a colleague have a microaggression and just kind of either sweeping it under the rug because now that's the first of many I made here. And it's like, okay, he hasn't mm -hmm. yet. This is clearly an issue. And I'm not sure that this is someone who should be out treating patients if this is really how he's feeling because what could be perceived as a microaggression now might just be direct ageism, you know, or sexism or racism. So, you know, I think mm -hmm. you know, addressing it definitely helps kind of eliminate that elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so regarding um, allyship and identifying these microaggressions and et cetera, et cetera, being so uh, just such a hot topic right now, I guess, for lack of better phrase, um, I've also gotten some questions about performative allyship. And I was wondering if any of you would mind speaking about what is performative allyship? How do people avoid it? Is that something that we should even be worrying about right now? Yeah, I'll try to talk a little bit towards that. Um, performative allyship is like supporting a cause just so people think that you're on board for the time being and then not putting in any legitimate work like when things kind of settle down. So, for instance, just posting a, a single IG post and then not helping out any members of that particular group that you're supporting. And then you may, even in the post or whatever you do, like you, you center yourself instead of the actual cause. Um, so it's kind of like you're just talking on a bandwagon. Cloud uh, oh, chasing. Yeah, yeah, perfect. That's the, the best way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you aren't, you aren't like truly an ally for instance, like just recently we had the Blackout Tuesday. You posting a black box doesn't mean now you're an ally. Perfect example, Drew Brees. He posted a box, but then mm -hmm. said something the next day. But, you know, you just because you post something, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, like, automatically gung ho for the cause. So Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And if you have like any questions on kind of what performative allyship is on Twitter, there's like this big trend going around where people are releasing statements about what's going on. And then, you know, Twitter is so great. They'll dig up old tweets or actions and quote the tweet and say this you. So if you just type yeah. in this you on Twitter, I'm sure you can see examples. For example, the 49ers, they've got this performative allyship. However, they, you know, basically, um, cut Kaepernick after, you know, uh, peacefully protesting, taking a knee, banned from the NFL, but yet now they're all, you know, standing with the cause. So, you know, stand stand with us, stand, you know, be down for the cause, but at the same time have action behind your words or your actions. Don't be that person posing for the picture of all the protesters behind you, and then 15 minutes later we catch you, you know, grabbing your Starbucks across the street, headed, headed home or whatever it may be. To that point, there's going to be a lot of people who've done things in the past and not proud of. 
and said things in the past they're not proud of and, and they want to be an ally. And so I feel like if you're going to take that step and say, okay, I want to be an ally, you also have to go back and address some of the things that you said and did wrong. And if you're on social media and that's where you're being an ally, you're going to have to take the responsibility to address that. Okay, I know I said these things. As a 49ers, we apologize to Colin, or we might hire you back. Like, you need to kind of go and correct your action and don't just kind of put this blanket over and, and kind of, like, start from here. Like, you did say some things. You need to address that was wrong so people can see that you're addressing your mind change and not just being on a bad wagon. And I, I think yeah, – sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, you, sir. But um, following along with what Brianna was saying, um, with social media, even though people don't want to admit it or address it, like – Social media is a very unforgiving place mm -hmm. and they are ready to dig up whatever and then completely oust you from society forever. Um, I, I don't know because yeah, I, I do think some people, we all make mistakes. Like nobody's perfect. If you mm -hmm. look back on any of our posts 10 years ago, I'm sure there was something that you said that was a little, a little off from the way, the way things are now, like any of the, any like median or however, if you look back, at what some of the things that were said, there's also like a room full of people who are laughing. So the way we talk is more or less dependent on like the way society is in that moment. Mm -hmm. So chances are we were okay with saying things way back when because everyone else was. So it, it's not it's not so fair to just find something from one person and then use it to attack them now because I'm sure you might have said something similar. So. But I, I really, I really hope more people at least will try to take the steps and the effort to try to correct themselves and um, just be like, oh, you know, I, I messed up. You know, I've, I've changed since then. You know, 10 years is a long time ago. So um, mm -hmm. now whether social media or whoever wants to forgive you, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I can't really speak to that. But hopefully we, we kind of move more into a forgiving place where we're yeah. you know, just kind of oust everyone. Because eventually, yeah. no left because no one's perfect. So, right, right. Uh, so we've got about five minutes left. I do have quite a few more questions that have come in. Um, some things that I'm curious about. So if anyone's listening, I may go over just by a little bit if that's okay with y'all. Because um, I don't, I want to do this conversation justice. Um, so now, now talking to the people who are ready, um, maybe they've already spoken up and they're they're getting pushback. So that might be from leadership or uh, other people in power in uh, a program. Um, that might be with family. So what what do you recommend to the people who are now they're in this fight? You know, they're they're ready to be allies. They're ready to speak up. And it is one of those things where y'all said like it, it can be really disheartening if nothing changes or you're not believed or um, something like that. So what do those people do next? Dan, ten toes down. You're not you're not speaking up or fighting for anything wrong, in my opinion. And mm -hmm. anyone who thinks that you speaking out, you, you need to question that organization that's, you know, coming down on you because it's not like, you know, this time we're fighting for something crazy or, you know, this is, in my eyes, basic human rights. So, you know, in my opinion, if you're receiving backlash, just continue, you know, I'm going to reassure you that you're not fighting for something wrong, you know. Continue to soul search, but if that company doesn't appreciate you for speaking out on the right thing, then maybe you should disassociate yourself from that organization, company, group, friend, whatever it may be. Yeah, I definitely am trying hard to empathize because I'm, I'm seeing some people post like they're, they're losing friends 
family even disowning them for speaking up. And I would say yeah. if you're a person of faith, you know, that's when you need to dig into that part of yourself because you don't want to like, be a hypocrite and just side with them just for the sake of not, you know, losing a certain friendship or a job when you know in your heart what is the right thing to do. So I think that whatever is in your heart is what you should stand by. And the people who are truly for you will stand with you. And it's just going to be shocking to see who leaves your side. But that just may be a sign that that person wasn't really meant to be um, in your life at this time, not this season. And maybe you'll be able to teach them in the future. But for right now, you definitely want to surround yourself with people who will love you um, regardless. And I just want to say my prayers out to any person, ally, whose family is literally cutting them off for taking a stand. I really think that's outrageous. But I know it's happening. So, yeah, absolutely. It's not easy, but it's it's one of those things that's worth it. And like you brought up earlier, Brianna, you know, some of these things. I mean, it's uncomfortable and it's tough and it's hard. But the minority's been uncomfortable and dealing with these tough things already and for <laughs> a long time. Um, so that just means you're just part of the fight now. You know, even if they can't completely understand your entire lived experience. Um, I got a question about sort of intersectionality of identities. Um, June is Pride Month, and uh, we've even got a part two coming up to this exchange chat um, focusing on that. And so how do people support both causes? How do people support, um, if they want to support Black Lives Matter movement, um, if they want to tweet about Pride Month without offending the other camp? I think there's freedom of speech. I, I really don't see the issue in, in supporting both things. I still people see posting pictures, selfies, and walking their dog in Starbucks at the same time they're posting these things about, you know, anything else. So I just really don't see that there should be a fight between the two, mm -hmm. obviously, in my personal opinion. It's like there's a bigger umbrella when we're talking about um, race relations. That's a, it's an umbrella because a person that's in the LGBTQ community is going to identify with maybe being Black or being a minority. So if we had to talk about an umbrella of what's, um, I hate to say more important, but what's pressing right now, it, it would be for me, you know, the movement going on for justice, especially for people of color. But I just really don't see why anyone would feel any type of way about posting about Pride Month and then also posting about the injustices going on. Because I just see plenty of Starbucks all over my feed and I feel like Pride Month is way more important than Starbucks and walking your dog. That's where I stand on that. Yeah, I agree. I don't think one takes away from the other, you know. I know, you know, kind of the Black Lives Matter movement is what's um, depressing, you know, what everyone is seeing. But, you know, I, I personally wouldn't be offended if I saw, you know, someone that belongs to the LGBTQ community posting something about Pride Month or even celebrating Pride Month, you know. So as long as they're not celebrating it and then, talking down on that you know on the black line, then it's then i'll be like oh wow okay <laughs> yeah. exactly i'll just kind of follow up on that i agree with both of my panelists if you will but um yeah as long as you're not you you don't put a post like now that black lives matter is over let's move to more important things right. month. like like come on like this is an ongoing thing so just kind of be mindful of what you post and yeah. like be respectful and i don't think you'll have an issue yeah. Uh, a few more questions here, actually, some that have just come in from the, in the last couple minutes. So this is great. Um, so something, something I've seen a lot, um, I'm on social media a lot, and 
there have been some really great pushes for DEI um, within APTA, uh, where they've got an entire task force and committee working on these things, and we've got this exchange chat. Um, there's minority scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also the comments that follow that say, well, we should be putting our efforts where it matters right now. And especially the comment that I think really got to me was, well, I hope that increasing diversity uh, doesn't come at the cost of a lower quality applicant. So is there anything, I know that, Mike, you talked about your imposter syndrome um, and, you know, waiting for UM to take back their offer, things like that. So um, is there anything that y'all would want to say to that sentiment? I think that for that statement to even be valid, you're you're assuming that the person solely got in on the base of their skin color. But mm. if the if the person that was admitted still has the same requirements as you, then there's no way that it's a low like lower applicant. So I don't know, that's that's kind of a interesting comment. I mean, I don't that that's kind of like fueling what we've been saying here today like mm -hmm. that's what you should move away from thinking like if, mm -hmm. if if a person is in your in that program in that profession whatever they they've had the minimum gpa they've had the minimum gre they've had mm -hmm. a, a pretty good resume i'm pretty sure they've been compared to hundreds of students and that person got there because they they look better on paper especially if the program didn't have like an interview process. Mm -hmm. um, but if they did, like they still, on paper, it's not like they have like terrible statistics. They, the person was meant to be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That comment, I just, my mouth was just like, oh my gosh, somebody said this. I really can't relate because I know plenty of very, <laughs> very smart minority people. For, for me, a lower quality applicant or equating that diversity comes at the cost of that is outrageous to me because there's plenty of qualified minority applicants. Uh, are they going to PT school? Or are they going to law school? Are they going to medical school? Are they not choosing the, the profession because they don't know about it? So for me, it's not about, you know, that a, a diverse population means a lower quality application or pool of applicants. To me, you need to go into these middle schools and high schools and there are 4.0 minority students who are looking right over physical therapy. They want to be MDs. They want to be DOs. They want to be dentists. They want to be anything but physical therapists. So we need to go in and speak to them and show them how wonderful of a profession this is. And I think you'll begin to see the same quality of applicants across all races and colors coming into your program. So that, I, honestly, I'm deeply offended by that. I don't, I'm sorry. That's it. And I, and I agree. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I hear you. Um, and to some extent, as a minority, I can relate. So I appreciate y'all uh, being willing to touch on that. Um, we've got a question here about um, within the PT sphere or outside of it, how do we prevent burnout when we're pushing for greater um, equality and representation? Social media me seems to make us care for two weeks on a problem since bad news floods our feeds every day. Um, that can be then overshadowed. Um, how do we continue with this progress and how do we this is me adding on, like, how do we keep up that momentum and that drive? I think that's one of my fears is actually that this will die down, this momentum, because it's overwhelming. And I know for me, when I feel overwhelmed, I delete everything. I would delete every single app and just completely shut down. Mm. I feel like I can't handle something. 
Um, but like to Michael Camardi's statements, they ten toes down. That's a quote from Nipsey Hussle, who passed away uh, last year. But it's like now is the time to just dig in deep. Now you can need to censor and protect your mental health, and you need to do that. So it's probably not healthy to be on all the time. But I think continuing to educate yourself, especially this year, this is an election year. So if nothing else, educate yourself on policy, educate yourself on voting. That's enough to keep you engaged in a systemic injustices that have been going on for years. Just reading about that is staying engaged. So for me, it's maybe just diversify what you're engaging with. Maybe one month you're into the protesting thing and the next month you're going to be on social media. The next month you want to learn about all of the um, petitions that could be signed. And the next month you want to just focus on voting since by that time it'll be November. I feel like there's just plenty of ways to just keep your mind um, or part of your mind thinking on this without cutting it off and without losing momentum. But maybe just diversify your momentum in different directions so you don't get burned out. Also, also just to add to it, I think, um, you know, by educating yourself to see that those before us, how long that they were protesting, marching, you know, to get where we are today, showing us like, okay, I, I saw, I think it was on Twitter that, you know, different causes, it was like 318 days, 185 days, mm-hmm. right? you know, kind of just changing that mindset of instead of like, when will this end, like strapping up to say like, this is just the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. we've got the mm-hmm. moment as mm-hmm. as we can right now. So that way, if we do get a little, you know, weary or fatigued on the way, we can take a small break and then pick back up because we've already laid the groundwork to keep progressing and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think also, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, um, I think also the, um, the fact that there's so many different ways to support the cause and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of avenues you can help also adds to it because especially if you are the type that does is okay with processing, you've been out like every day since all this started, um, maybe take a break from whatever you're currently mm-hmm. doing and then support another way mm-hmm. until you're ready to like mm-hmm. mentally go back to whatever, like you really want to do. So maybe you've been protesting for mm-hmm. a week and you're tired. You've been hit by some stray rubber bullets, who knows, but um, you take a break, you, you try to, Put out information, talk to your friends, try to support people who maybe are on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And then w- once you're ready, like mentally and physically, like go back. Um, so you aren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Um, and in terms of staying engaged, staying uh, up to date kind of on everything, there was a question that came in asking if you all have any uh, book suggestions in particular um, that might hit on racial inequality in healthcare. And I have one, too, if anyone can't think of one. Um, the one I read or listened to was an audio book just last year. It was a mm-hmm. black man in a white coat. I think that one's pretty good. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that's like the main one that stands out to me. Uh, one that isn't necessarily like healthcare, but kind of touches on things. It's both an audio and it's like an article is the case for reparations. And I talked to you about that user the other day. Um, by yeah that's right i hope i'm not butchering his name but Mm -hmm. yeah that kind of lays out like why people are even protesting right now why there's issues Mm -hmm. why we haven't like just moved past this so to speak um Mm -hmm. so yeah those are my suggestions uh also the new jim crow um kill alexander yeah that's a that's a good one that i can you know, every time I'm like, hey, you know, if I have a talk coming up and people want to know what, I, what do they learn from that, it's like, 
music number one that people will bring up. So the new Jim mm-hmm. definitely a good one. Yeah, I was going to say that same one. And she has a workbook that goes along with it with action steps. If you uh, believe her case, because she also mentions that her husband is um, a police officer and actually strongly disagrees with a lot of things that she's writing. But if you do um, understand and can digest all that information, she actually has a workbook of action steps that you can take to fight against um, basically modern day slavery, pretty much. That's how deep she goes. And also, if you're not a reader, um, I know, like, with Just Mercy on Amazon Prime, um, The Hate You Give, uh, When They See Us is on Netflix. Those are, you know, about the story of Central Park Five. It's like, you know, different movies or documentaries about, you know, other racial inequalities or injustice. 13 as well. Yeah. 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 And and if, you know, anyone listening, um, either has a diversity club um, at Duke, 13th is something we watch every year through Diversity Club. And um, if you don't have one, this might be the time to start. Um, it might be time to look into starting that club. <laughs> um, I, y'all, I know we're over time, but I'm sorry. I'm going to keep going just a little bit longer. <laughs> so bear with me, everybody. Stick with me. Um, I, I really want to get back to, um, we talked about it a while ago, but this idea of language. Um, Mike, your post about code switching. Um, Mark, you talking about you know, uh, uh, the way you speak might be interpreted differently because your voice is deeper or something like that. Um, I also find it interesting that we are all, uh, we all want to be peaceful in the South. And so like, you know, that has an impact on things. But um, what what would y'all say to uh, someone who's, who hears you talking about code switching and hears you talking about everything else that you're going through and thinks, my gosh, that's a lot. That's a lot mentally to kind of keep track of and deal with. And they say, well, why don't you just be yourself? You know, just talk how you want to talk. You know, no one's telling you not to, to, to change things up. I can handle whatever, you know, whoever you are. So why not? I, I'll, I don't know. I guess I'll touch on that first. <laughs> um, I think it can be kind of annoying if someone just tells me to like, just be myself because like, this mm-hmm. is me. This is how I am around y'all. So like, this is the way I've learned that is safest for me to operate in the space that I'm in right now. And you know, over time, you kind of learn that not everyone is okay with 100% of the person that you are, be it in, like, the way that you talk or the way that you have fun or the things you like to do. So it's like, this is the way that you're navigating the space. And, you know, someone kind of is like, oh, just stop doing that. It's like, oh, there's been some reasons why I don't want to do that. So, mm-hmm. um, like, not if you don't code switch, especially in, like, a professional space or, like, in uh, TPT school. And if you just try mm-hmm. to be yourself, it can cause maybe your classmates to start discrediting you and your work, like not thinking that what you're saying or doing is I'm on the same level as your classmates. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. they're not going to study with you or take your suggestions for things. Um, whenever they're, if they're confused about a question, you try to answer, maybe they won't want to hear you out and they'll hear someone else. Um, I know sometimes mm-hmm. for me, it was like a challenge to get people like taking what I was saying sometimes. Um Again, like sometimes people just won't think that you can like do anything, but it's like you're you're being yourself. Um, and then you see someone else do literally the, or say the exact same thing, and they're met with nothing but positivity. So it's like, oh, what was the difference? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I would say it's like all about like feeling safe too. Um, and with, I guess you, some people call it ebonics or even like Black English, like. 
there's something that sometimes we only feel safe with each other or with our families. And that's not uncommon even. I, I also speak Spanish and it really helps me in the clinic, but there is also a safe space for their language. Some of them actually speak English and they prefer that you actually not speak Spanish to them because they can understand mm. English. And it's that's their language. Mm-hmm. It's something they prefer to use at home. And it's I really only use it unless the patient does not speak English. And I have to really catch myself because I'm, I'm I really want to learn and I and I want to speak Spanish to everybody, but I know that it is not safe. That is something that is for them. And I think that's also something that can be said about um maybe the way a black person would talk amongst their family or even just with their grandparents versus with their cousins. Like sometimes there's even a difference there. And it's just about feeling safe. And then to Mark's point, we learned code switching. I think as soon as we could start talking, as soon as we went to public school where there were other kids, that's when you learn about code switching. So we've been doing, we didn't just start doing this in undergrad. We've been doing this in all of mm-hmm. our lives. So it's, it is who we are. We know how to do it. We can assimilate pretty well. And yeah. Uh, just, just to add to it, um, you know, like, yeah, code switching goes way deeper than just like, you know, in the classroom where, you know, like if I call a bill collector or something like that, like I have a voice for that. Like if I'm computing <laughs> a charge or something like there's a whole, you know, uh, persona that goes into that. So, you know, and then also I, when people say be yourself, I take that with a grain of salt sometimes because they've seen me code switch and already now have this less um, threatening perception of me or a stereotypical perception of me as a black person versus if I introduce myself to them without code switching, then, they now won't be, you know, possibly saying, oh, just be yourself, because now they, you know, their first impression is a lasting impression. But now that they see that I'm able to speak the way they do or whatever, you know, they can say, oh, just be yourself. You know, you know, you, I can handle it. But it's like, could you handle that from the start? Or did you have to finally first get to know me and see who I was and, you know, how I carried myself before, you know, you say be yourself? Yeah, essentially, there's a reason behind, you know, even any sort of change in anything that you might say or do. Um, Brianna, you brought up um, a really interesting statement where you said, you know, that sometimes you have to catch yourself not and not speak Spanish, even though you want to learn. And so I think a lot of people come at this of, I just want to learn. You know, people are very, very open-minded. Um, and they may reach out to you, for example, right now, when it might be a time where this is a little bit more of like a mental burden, for example, Um what what is your advice to people who want to learn and then maybe reach out to a friend of theirs who's a black or another uh, person of color and they don't get a whole lot back? Um, the person says, I just I can't talk about this right now. Um, yeah. How do how does that person, you know, stick with it and stick with the cause and realize that it's not personal? Yeah, that's been coming up a lot. Um, and personally, I like to talk a lot and I, I haven't been turning a lot of people down. But sometimes you have to for the sake of mm-hmm. time and also for the sake of your mental health. So yes, the first mm-hmm. key is to know that that's probably not personal because this is very overwhelming. I'm pr- many people have cried. I've shed a lot of tears over the past two weeks. So sometimes talking about it is just emotional. Um, so I would say mm-hmm. to that person, like continue to be eager. If someone that you really trust and is your friend and you reached out and they're just like, eh. it is cause they, it's not because they don't want to be your friend or anything. It's just they need a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, using those resources you know, that we talked about will be a good thing if you haven't been watched on Netflix, everything you could been watch, just go been watch it. By the time you get finished, I'm sure they'll be ready to talk. Or if you're a reader, just read a book or two and just kind of try to understand from a different perspective because some people do need the time. And so 
maybe reach out to different people. Maybe you don't have to reach out to the same person every time. If there's someone else you feel comfortable, maybe ask them. But if you're met with that, not right now, it's just everything's high. It's super. The emotions are extremely high. And you also don't want to be met with a, a displaced uh, angry response. And that would probably crush mm-hmm. you even more. So it's really uh, a sensitive. And, and yeah, just really don't take it personal. But try to learn as much as you can before you ask. That way you even know what to ask. You know, maybe you can ask mm-hmm. a more a question that shows that you've actually been studying and not just tell me everything about the black experience because yeah how can we do that in one conversation <laughs> tell me how much time you have <laughs> right. awesome um and then i think too like uh you know correct me if i'm wrong but i think it kind of goes back to that, that idea of like feeling safe and you know where is it safe to have these conversations and with whom and mm-hmm. um and Again, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably don't expect people to like read every book on this list and then, you know, they're worthy of your time. But um, but there are ways to make people feel comfortable and show that you're open minded and right. um, and show that you're an, you're an ally. Um, there's one microaggression that I was hoping to um, get y'all thoughts on just because I think it's especially important right now. It's the idea of I don't see color. Um, what are y'all thoughts on that phrase? Because I think it's something that's very well-meaning and it's something that comes with an open heart. So why is it that, well, I won't even bias the question. I'll just let y'all answer it. Um, oh, go ahead, Mike. Okay, just real quick. Um, so I don't I don't like the, the phrase. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Lisa Van Hoos put it perfectly. You know, we are, we are who we are, you know, and by saying you don't, um, see color is basically telling us that you don't see a part of us and you know mm-hmm. I think of not seeing color I think we should see it and embrace it um, you know it's kind of like a celebration of color like it's to me it's an, an amazing thing when we can see color and despite any differences still you know uh, cohabitate get along and you know work well together but you know by um, telling me you don't see color it just kind of discredits our individuality. So, you know, mm-hmm. while it's harmless in nature, um, I think, um, you know, in the direction that we're trying to move forward, it kind of takes away from that by telling us that you don't see the color. Sure. Yeah. Um, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I think that's probably one of the most harmful phrases saying I don't see color. Um, I think, like, it's kind of put out a, a statement like, all the CIs or clinical instructors out there do not tell your students that faculty don't tell your minority students that directors don't tell your fellow faculty members that clinicians don't tell your colleagues that you don't see color students that aren't minorities. Don't tell your minority classmates that don't tell your kids that all around the board. Don't don't tell it because like, like Mike said, you're just, you're, you're diminishing like our experience. you're you're ignoring our the discrimination the oppression that happens to us daily by saying I don't see color. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So so I it, it I I understand like you probably mean well by it, but until each of us roots out like the biases we have, um, everyone in this country and really the world, and we start having more of these open conversations, it's very inconsiderate mm-hmm. and very possibly even like dangerous to say I don't see color. Because, like, mm-hmm. to fight against racism, you have to see race. So if you don't see it, then you can't fight against it. So. I agree. Sure. 
It's also literally false. We all have eyeballs, so we can see everything. <laughs> so it's just not, it's not logical. And on top of that, if you tell yourself that, you may not be willing to explore the implicit biases that you have because you're just constantly telling yourself that everyone is clear and it's not true. You will tell yourself that and still put your purse in the elevator when Mark gets on. You do see color. You just don't know it. So you need to acknowledge that you do see it and it's something that's there. It's dangerous to pretend that you don't because then you won't ever look into yourself to see where in these areas do I actually have a bias. Yeah, yeah. All right, this is going to be my very last question. Um, and it's more so just kind of want to open it up. Is there anything else that y'all want to share? Um, anything about why it is that it's not just up to black people to be part of this fight in anti-racism and in anti-blackness? Is there anything else, any other stories about, you know, strong allies in your life? Anything at all this time with y'all? So I think I was uh, talking to Mike about this a little while ago, but, um, uh, if there's anyone that like is seeing what's going on right now and um, seeing the protesting and is kind of like confused as to why people are so um, um, disgruntled and upset with with even the recent murders, um, we I think this country just hasn't really ever dealt with um, like. The original, the, the original sins that we, that have happened like hundreds of years ago. We have been like finally said like, okay, this was wrong. We, we, we messed up and then now let's do this, this and this to fix it. So it's been 400 years of oppression in different forms and it's gone on unabated until we came to this time. And then now there's coronavirus. Now there's, millions of people out of work, millions of people at home, you know, everyone's worried about, you know, where they're going to get, uh, everyone's worried about like the next day period. Um, then there's mm -hmm. the recent murders by the police and the ones that don't necessarily make the news or may not even make social mm -hmm. media because a lot of things happen on social media that don't make the news either. But um, then there's mm -hmm. people that don't even post about social media or like it doesn't get a million retweets. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that the recent events lit this powder keg, and then here we are. So I think that it's understandable why there's so much frustration. But if you really just look at what's like a recent event, then you might not understand it, but it's it's a group of people being disproportionately treated unfairly for hundreds of years, being denied equal treatment for hundreds of years, being disrespected by cops, murders, like, and it just, it just, that you can see it's not a fair treatment. So that's why I feel like we just need to address how we got here first and then, you know, start moving forward, start to heal, heal together. And for me, I just would like to say that the problems that this nation has currently is very systemic and it's intentional. It's not by happenstance. It's not you know, oh, it just happened to be this way. You know, we did what we were supposed to do. You guys can vote now. Even the things that are going on now, the, the mass incarceration, this police brutality, these redlining, there's a lot of things that are systematically in place still. And the only way that can change that is if this generation and the generation coming after us learn to stand up for what is right. And if you are willing to lose friends and family and jobs to stand up for what's right, you have to be, or else this is going to continue. 
So if you're watching this, if you're an ally and you know what's going on is, is wrong and you've seen it in multiple areas, but you're quiet, you can't, you can't stay that way because then your kids are going to grow up in that environment. And if you don't say something, you're going to raise kids that won't say something. And you're just going to perpetuate the problem. So everyone, I would say, dig deep. And we have to be willing to rise up. We have to be willing to do things we wouldn't normally do, to say things we wouldn't normally say, to lead things we wouldn't normally lead. Or 200 years from now, we're going to be right here. Same problem, different arena. That is all that has happened. It's systemic, and we have to weed out the weeds. There's weeds that have been in there, and they have some strong systems to stay there. But we have the power we band together. We can change that, but it's going to take more than a couple of weeks and some social media tweets and a protest. Yeah. It's going to be hard to follow up these two, but um, <laughs> I guess um, for one, um, you know, the people in power who have the position to make change, like right now, um, you know, speaking from a PT perspective, so like chairs of departments and things of that nature. Um, I think what really helps is representation all across the board. Um, I can literally tell you the names of every um, Black physical therapist that came in and spoke to us, guest lecture, or, you know, was our professor. Um, and for me, that gave me, you know, like a line of hope. You know, that kind of gave me hope, like I can make it. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can see the other side just from seeing those six individuals, you know, and I, I still to this day remember, you know, the first time I saw a black PT come and speak to us and like, I made it my duty after class to be like, please mentor me. Like, you know, cause that was my first black, someone that looked like me that was in the profession. And so, you know, that meant a lot to me. I still have his number to this day. Like I text his mom, you know, happy birthday, things like that. So, you know, I think, to, you know, any um, chairs that are watching, that means a lot to your minority students to have kind of that safe space with somebody that they can see themselves in teaching the class um, that, you know, kind of gives them hope. Uh, but also just kind of, you know, don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. Um, I think, you know, that's how anyone grows in any situation, you know, just like when you're, you know, learning OIAN in anatomy, you know, maybe the first time you're uncomfortable learning it, but on the other side, there is growth. So, you know, I have those challenging conversations with my dad about the protest and how we should be protesting. Um, just because of generations, uh, different generations, we share different views on how it should be done. Mm-hmm. And with my stepmom, she's a police officer. So, you know, we get this rhetoric of good cop versus bad cop. All cops aren't good, bad cops, things of that nature. And, you know, I'm not afraid to have that uncomfortable conversation because I know she's in the police force. She can be that change that we need to see from the inside out. So, you know, I like to practice what I preach. And I think it's important that, you know, we have, we have, we're uncomfortable now, you know, so that later we don't have to have these talks because, you know, while the people who aren't experiencing this are tired of it, you know, imagine those colleagues who you call a friend um, who have to deal with this night in and night out. Don't get to take that break. You know, we don't have that that opportunity. It's like, okay, we turned our phone off, but that's not going to change the looks we get when we go to the grocery store or when we go for a run, whatever it may be. So if you think you're tired or fatigued from all of this, just put yourself in the shoes of those that you call friends who don't have the opportunity to take a break. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a uh, no closing statement I can give <laughs> that's going to be um, a worthy of this chat. So all I can say is um, thank you to the three of you. I love and respect you three so much. And it's very difficult to put yourself out there. Um, so I, I want to thank everyone who has been so welcoming in the comments as well. And um, to everybody watching and who's who's ready because um, it's time to time to be an ally. It's time to be uncomfortable. It's time to uh, to be anti-racist and it's time to join the fight um, real quick. Uh, I, I definitely want everyone to read your blog posts, but also if they did want to reach out um, and maybe like follow your work, uh, all three of you have blogs. So do you mind uh, telling everyone real quick where they can find you? Um, we'll start with Brianna, I'll go to Mike and then to Mark. Okay, so the easiest place to find me is probably on Instagram because I'm not as active on Facebook. Um, so my Instagram is dr.bri underscore the PT. So Dr. Bree the PT. Um, and I don't know if there's a way to type it, but yeah, that's my Instagram. And on Facebook, I'm Brianna Sade Scott. So that's probably the, the two easiest ways to get to me. Um, and so you can find me on uh, Twitter uh, at Mike, M-I-K-E, Crow, C-R-O, D-P-T. Um, that's probably where you're more than likely going to get a response. But you can also find me on Facebook um, with Michael Cromarty. I mean, maybe my middle name as well, but um, <laughs> it's the second. It's the second if you find me on Facebook uh, because my dad, yeah, you'll find someone else if you reach out to the original Michael Cromarty. So. <laughs> But uh, platforms, you can reach me on Instagram, but I'd rather not because it's not really like a physical therapy platform. So just Twitter or Facebook for sure. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Mark the SBT. There's no uh, dots or anything. It's straightforward. So I think that's the best way. Um, I have an Instagram as well, but it's kind of like Mike. It's, it's like, eh. It kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Uh, yeah, so I think Twitter is probably the best place. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I skipped announcements at the beginning, so bear with me all one more minute. I'm just going to give a quick uh, few closing announcements that I was going to give at the beginning. But um, one, read their blog posts. They are great. I've never met any of you in person, and yet I just feel like I've gotten to know you so much better through your writing, so I really appreciate you putting that out there. Um, two, we have a part two to this chat coming up. Um, it's going to be called Same Thing, Fostering Allyship and DEI. This time we'll talk more about uh, gender and sexual DEI. Um, that'll be on June 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, same place. Um, applications for the Student Assembly Board of Directors are open, including my position as Director of Communication. So if you want to meet incredible people like this and um, you know get on do exchange chats please reach out to me and also reach out to your uh, three members of your nominating committee on the student assembly board of directors they're a fantastic resource um, for just applications and uh, election process in general and then um, this feels exceptionally relevant today uh, we're always looking for more blog posts on the post blog so you can submit um, your draft idea uh, or your post idea to uh, pulse at apta.org Thank you all so much. Everyone have a great night. Thank you, Yusra. Fantastic job. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks.